Thank you, thank you. As you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, I know Cindy's heart. She sings for the Lord. And uh, I thank God she was able to be with us tonight. What a blessing. What a blessing. I, the last couple of nights, you, you may have noticed I moved during the fellowship time. I moved up here and sit on that stool. It's just with my back. My back, some of y'all don't know that my back went out on me last week. I'm still kind of easing around. It's easier for me to get up off that stool. And uh, I figured y'all would let me do that and have to have two or three men get up here and tote me up those steps. So anyhow, I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And, but uh, I sat over behind that piano. You get a whole different perspective of that thing sitting over there. And uh, Jason, you beat fire out of that thing, brother. I, I bet y'all have to change oil in about every third Sunday. Yeah. Uh, well, he he can get it done. Y'all are very blessed to have a great pianist here. He's, and I love his attitude. He he does it for the Lord too, and that's a that's a blessing. And you know you can tell the difference when somebody's doing it for the Lord, doing it for themselves. You can really tell the difference. Well, I'm on a, I'm on a well. This is sermon number two. The preacher already got up here and preached to us once tonight. So let me finish his sermon and then I'll do mine. Okay. He, he, he was on us, and, and how true it is about how busy we are these days. A number of years ago, I preached at Shaco. It was the Alabama Baptist Deacons Retreat. And there was about 900 deacons and preachers and people there. And at that time, and I think still is, it's the largest annual meeting they have each year at Shaco. And I was preaching, Bob Pittman was preaching, and and uh, another fellow, and David Ring was there. And David was very popular in those days and did a great job. Anyhow, I preached a couple of sermons, and a few weeks after that, I was pastor of First Baptist Church at Red Bay at the time, and uh, Sunday night after church, I got a call. And the fellow on the other end of the line said, uh, Brother Nichols, you don't know me. I've never met you, but I pastor a church over here in northeast Alabama, and my deacons were down at that deacon's retreat the other week, and uh, I was coming with them, but I had a death in the church and a funeral. I didn't get to come, and, but my men were there, and my men came back, and they told me, they said, Pastor, if you'll invite that man, Sid Nichols, come preach a revival, we'll do whatever deacons need to do to make sure we have revival. And he said, Brother Sid, I, I've never asked anybody to preach in my church, and I haven't personally heard preach, but I never had deacons make me an offer like that. And I'd like to see it happen. I said, brother, you're not the only one. I'd like to be in on that myself. <laughs> so he gave me a date, and I went over. I started on a Sunday night and went Sunday night through Friday night, a little old crossroads country church. And so the, the, the only revival I've ever preached where by Friday night we only had standing room. People were lined up outside, couldn't get in the building. We had 97 decisions in that little church that week. It was in February. It was cold, and... Very few seats, the only seats, there were a few seats right over here about the third row because there were two old men that sat there. Their names were Bud and EJ. They were old bachelor brothers. They still lived in the same little white frame house that they were raised in. Their daddy and mama had gone on to heaven and that church loved those two old men and took care of them, particularly two of those young deacons. They made it their personalized ministry to look after these two men by the name of Bud and EJ. Well, they told me some stories about Bud and E.J. 
And one of the stories they told, this was back in Jimmy Carter days when we had the gas shortages and all those problems. Well, they were telling me about one night it was real cold and they went up to check on Buddy and EJ because they were concerned about them. And now what, what you got to know about Buddy and EJ is Bud did all the talking. Uh, he had a real shrill voice and he had a bad habit. He called everybody fool. First time I met him, he said, Hello, fool, how you doing? I told the pastor, I didn't know whether I needed to slap him or pray for him. <laughs> well, anyhow, EJ, his brother, hardly ever said a word. So these deacons went and checked on, knocked on the door. It was freezing cold. And old Bud opened the door, and he said, What you fools doing out there? It's freezing cold. They said, Well, Bud, we came to check on you and your brother and make sure y'all are okay. So, said, Well, come on in the house. It's cold out there. So they walked in. He took them in the den. He said the only thing in the den was a rocking chair. He was right in the middle of the room. He was kind of semi-rocking. It had his, his Bud's Bible was open and sitting in that chair because he'd been sitting there reading his Bible. And plugged in the wall over there was a light cord. And he'd staple it to the wall and across the ceiling. It was hanging down right over that chair. And in the end of that light cord, he'd, he'd screwed a 60-watt bulb. And then he took black electrical tape and he taped up the whole bulb except for the very end of it. So all there was was one little stream of light shining right straight down on that chair in that Bible. And, and Bud would sit there with his Bible and he'd read it like this. <laughs> one of those deacons said, Bud, i got to ask you a question. Well, what though? What do you want to ask me? He said, why in the world have you got that light bulb taped up like that? He says... Why, fool, anybody figure that out? president's been asking us to conserve energy, and anybody figure it out. You take that tape off that light bulb, it's going to light up the whole room. <laughs> now, I tell you that to tell you this. That may be the finest definition of revival I've ever heard. You see, what happens is when Jesus comes into your life, you become light. He is the light, Amen. And so when he fills you with light, you're light. But if you're not awful careful, just like the preacher told us earlier tonight, if you're not extremely careful, you'll allow the world to surround you with all this busy stuff and all the busyness of life, and it's like that black tape. Before you know it, it's taped you up to where there's just a small little semblance of the true light shining out of your life. So the definition of revival is this when you get the tape stripped away and shine brightly for Jesus again. So I finished your sermon, brother. Now I'm going to preach mine, okay? You're welcome. There are two tremendous barriers to church growth today, particularly in Southern Baptist churches. Now, I want to preface this message by telling you tonight that weeks ago, I felt like I understood what God wanted me to preach on this particular night. But during the night last night and early this morning in my study time and prayer time, God convinced me it wasn't what I was supposed to preach. So I'm going to preach the message God wanted to be preached tonight instead of the message I wanted to preach. 
And we need to listen to it and pay close attention to it, I think. There are two tremendous barriers to church growth in our church today. I preached all over one of them last night. We have really lost our burden for souls. That's number one. And folks, we're never going to be growing churches until we reestablish and find a way to become burdened for lost people again. The pastor said last night that, that it was time we get our focus on what we need to be focusing on rather than, than programs and budgets and forms. You see, it's very easy to do churchy things. And most people think that's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be doing churchy things. No, we need to be what the church ought to be. Then the things will take care of themselves. But we get so overwhelmed with getting all the things done, all the right things, all the right programs, all the right forms, all the right rules, all the right budgets, all the right bylaws, all the right business meetings. We get into all of that stuff and all of a sudden that tape has taped us up to where there's no light shining over here to show the lost sinner his way or her way toward the cross and Jesus. So I've preached enough about that. I want to preach about the second problem we have in the church today. I call it wrong attitudes in religious people. Now one of the reasons I know that the Word of God is the living Word of God is because way back yonder... God allowed Jesus to address some things that were going to be big problems for us today. In Luke chapter 7, there's an obscure little passage of Scripture. You may have never heard a message preached on this text. But it's powerful when it comes to dealing with wrong attitudes in our church. I want you to look at it in Luke chapter 7, verses 31 and 32. Jesus said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation? And to what are they like? They're like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another and saying, We've piped unto you, and you have not danced. We've mourned to you, and you have not wept. Jesus gives us the picture of children at play, pouting, Fussing, capricious little children who take nothing seriously but are full of play. It says something about our churches today. Our churches today have traded conviction and commitment for comfort and convenience. Children at play. Well, well what it is, it's a picture. In the day of Jesus, children didn't have things that they have to play with today. They didn't have things we played with, but they played. What did they do? They, they created games. They used their imaginations. And Jesus tells us that somewhere there was a group of children that had observed a Jewish wedding. If, if you go back and study the ceremony of a wedding in that day, it was a festive time. It was a joyful time. It was a celebrative time. Everybody was happy. Everybody was excited. This was a big day, the largest day, biggest day 
for that couple who were about to be married. And they celebrated with zest and they enjoyed themselves. They sang and they had music and they danced and they ate and they had a party. And so those children had observed that and they created a game called Wedding. And they wanted to play wedding, so they said to their little playmates over there in that group, they said, hey, y'all come on over here. We, we, we have piped unto you. We're playing music. We're going to play wedding. Come on over here. And it says, we've piped to you, but you have not danced. Y'all come on over here and play our game. No, 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 no. No, because this group over here, they had observed a funeral. Now, a funeral was a morbid scene. It was a sad scene. It was a time of parting and sorrow. It was a time when people were weeping and and there were a lot of emotions involved and all the things that go on in a funeral. So the children here had created a game called Funeral. And they said, no, 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 we don't want to play wedding. We, we, We have mourned unto you and you have not wept. Come play with us. You, you, you come play our game. And the truth was, what Jesus is showing us here, is that this group over here didn't want to play what this group over here wanted to play, and that group over there didn't want to play what this group over here wanted to play. So the truth was, nobody played anything at all. Now, if that's not a picture of a Baptist church, I don't know what is. You get a group over here who want to do one thing, and a group over here who want to do another thing, and they think they're right, and they think they're right, and there's no middle ground, so nobody does anything. Jesus knew we were going to have to grapple with that kind of attitude in the churches. Wrong, wrong attitudes in religious people. One group wanted to name their game and play, the other one named their game and play. Truth was, it was a standoff. And that attitude has been common to every generation. That's why he put it in the Word. That's why it's there for us to learn from it tonight. Some want to play one game, some another, but the truth is nobody played it all. Now, now, interesting thing here. It's an amazing thing to notice what Jesus is doing. He's using children. Children, it's a fascinating thing about children. They have the luxury of imagination. I mean, I mean think about what children could do. When I was a boy, I grew up in Chilton County, Alabama. And when, when I was a boy, we didn't have air conditioning and and, uh, and, 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 you know, so we played outside. Now, now, let me ask you this. I'm going to date some of you, but how many of you here? We lived, we, lived, we lived 100 yards off the main road to the mailbox. Now, how many of y'all have ever done this? Gone out in the woods, cut a hickory sapling, about that big around, about five and a half, six feet long, trimmed it up, nubbed it up good and clean, tied a rope on it or a twine, and named it Trigger and rode it for 1,000 miles. Now, how many of you ever did it? That's how we traveled when I was a kid, you know. And Mama would come out on the porch. She'd say, son, go get the mail. I said, Mama, it's a long ways down there at mailbox, and it's hot. She said, oh, boy, get on trigger and go get it. And there I'd go, you know. <laughs> be right back. Look at split. I'd be gone. The power of imagination. Or you, you, you can give a, a child a cardboard box. And there's no telling what they'll create in their mind. That could be a, it could be a mighty ship or a tractor-trailer rig or a train engine or an apartment building. But they can play and play and play in a big old cardboard box because of imagination. Or 
You give a little old girl a doll, and she'll love that doll with the same compassion and affection you love your own child with. Children have the power of imagination. But the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, the love chapter, that there's a time to grow up. You see, in religion, we need a man-sized religion made up of those who think of themselves not as little children, men and women of God, not children who pout and stomp their feet just because they don't get their way. We need people who take God and God's work seriously who will put away childish things. Let me tell you something. Adults are not to be childish. You know, you can just write that down. Adults ought not be childish. And you know what? There's a big difference between being childish and being childlike. <laughs> you know, when I was pastor of First Baptist Church at Red Bay, Alabama, I had, my children were small. And they were the only grandchildren on my wife's side of the family. And they were two or four on my side of the family. And I didn't understand this principle until I became a grandparent. But Barbara and I couldn't understand why the grandparents were constantly lavishing toys on our children. I mean, you know, it's their birthday, it's Christmas, they thought about them, I mean, Toys, toys, toys. We, we had enough toys to open and use Toys R Us. And we had a big old house. We lived in a pastorum. It was a huge house. And people were known to come by pretty often. And, and uh, most of the time they'd call and say, we're going to come by in a little while, Pastor. Well, it just throw panic into us because we had toys everywhere. And we'd just go to throwing toys here and there under the bed. I, I remember one day I stuck a bunch of them in the oven. And I mean, just <laughs> toys, toys everywhere, trying to clean up before somebody got there. And, and, and so one day I had this Pulitzer Prize idea. I told Barbara, I said, Barbara, we got this big old house. And we got all these toys. And I'm just tired of having to rush and clean up all the time. I said, let's just designate one of these rooms as a toy room. We'll just put everything in there. And they can go in there and play. If somebody comes, we'll just close the door. And you know, it worked great until one day. I had one of those days. I had one of your yesterdays. I, it, it was one of those days that I thought if I could just get home, get in my den, get in my chair, take my phone off the hook, turn my TV on, get my paper, and settle down within an hour or two, I might get back to normal. It had been one of those days. Well, I came home, and I walked through the back door. And Barbara usually met me with a kiss, but this particular day, she looked at me, she just backed up and said, you've had one of those days. I went right on in my den. I sat down in my chair. I got my paper. I took my phone off the hook. I turned the TV on. I was sitting there. I was just about to get normal when in that toy room in there, I heard an explosion. I thought to myself, if it's bad, they'll come get me. So I just sat there. In a few minutes... I heard the door squeaking, and I looked over, and there came my little boy, about four years old. What had happened was, he had one of these play train engines, 
They're about that long. They're clear of body. They got 3,221 screws and cogs and nuts and bolts and all springs and all that kind of stuff in there. And you wind it up, you put it on the floor, and all 3,221 parts work together, and it goes across the floor, toot, 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 toot. But it's in a vacuum. And he had tripped and sat out on it, and it exploded. Now here he comes, squeaking through my door with his arms like this, and he's got most of that 3,221 pieces in his arms like this. And he walked over to me and dumped it in my lap and says, Here, Daddy, put my train back together for me. Now, you know what that was? That was childlike faith. You know why? He believed with all of his heart his daddy could put his little toy back together. He believed that. That's what has to happen when we get saved. You you can't come to the Savior any other way. You you can't have childish faith and get saved. You've got to have childlike faith. You've got to come to the place you recognize you're broken. You're in pieces. You're damned. There's nothing you can do. There's no way you can do it on your own. And you have to fall on His grace and His mercy and cry out, Father, Daddy, put me back together again. And when you do that, He will. That's childlike faith. There's a big difference in being childlike and being childish. And the world can tell that difference. When when Barbara and I were dating as teenagers or, or late teenagers, there was a popular song out. The words of the song said, The games people play now. Every night and every day now, never meaning what they say now, never saying what they mean. That sounds a lot like church, doesn't it? You know, we're notorious playing games in our churches. So I want to talk to you tonight about five games we play in church. Number one. The game called tag. How many of you ever played tag? Most everybody's played tag. You know how it is. You have to get an it and they chase somebody. They tag them it and then they chase somebody and make them it. Now the most interesting characteristic about tag is nobody ever wants to be it. Now think about it. Any, many, miny, moe. One potato, two potato, three potato, four. How many fingers I got behind my back? Somebody get some straws. We'll draw some straws. Nobody wants to be it. But then you get an it, and everybody goes to running, and it starts to chase you. Well, you say, Brother Sid, how do we play tag in the church? Well, I'm glad you asked. It generally happens about this time of year. You get a nominating committee together, and you say, okay, you're it. Now, here's your assignment. We want you to go back there in one of those rooms, and we want you to pray about who's going to be the teachers and leaders of our church for the next year. And by the way, we're going to be praying with you that God will show you who it ought to be, and we'll get this job done, and we'll be happy about it. So they go back there, and they start praying, and they pray, and God speaks to them, and here they come. They say, Brother, you're it. God told us you're to teach that adult men's classes. Oh, no, 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 hold on. God may have told you that, but he hadn't told me that. No, 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 you need to rethink that. Y'all better go back there and pray again. I'm not going to do that. No, no, don't ask me. I want the church, sure, I want the church to grow, but just don't ask me to be it. Well, ma'am, God wants you to work this year in a leadership position with the ladies. Oh, no, 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 no. My giftedness is, no, you missed the boat there. 
You must, you, you, God must have sent you a wrong phone call on that one. No, 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 don't be. No, I want the church to grow. Just don't ask me to be it. Well, I never did like tag. You know why? Look at me. Do you see it? There's a target on my back. When I played in tag, it didn't bother being it because he started salivating. They could catch me. I was always too slow. And I'd become it. I've been it all my life. I got to think about that one day. That wouldn't be a bad epitaph, would it? Here lies a man who spent his whole life being it. But you know what would make that perfect? If they were able to carve in underneath it the words for God. Here lies a man who spent his whole life being it for God. What are you doing for Jesus? What are you doing in your church? What are you allowing God to do through you and with you in your church, in the body of Christ? By the way, let me just give us a lesson on the body of Christ. Paul tells us in Corinthians, the church is the body of Christ. How many of you can say amen to that? And it says there that it pleased God. If you're a member of this church and you join because of the Holy Spirit leading you here, you're here because it says it pleased Him to put you in this body. And then he goes on to say that everybody in this church is a part of the body. So some of us are eyeballs and some of us are kneecaps and some of us are elbows. But we all have a role. Now let me show you how that works. We're a body. Now if I were, God forbid, but if Pam and I on the way home tonight had an automobile accident and I lost my right leg in that accident, I'd either live the rest of my life in a wheelchair or on crutches or with a prosthesis because I don't have a leg anymore. I am now, quote, what? Handicapped. Because I'm missing a body part. If you're a part of this church and you're not doing what God called you to do and gifted you to do, you have handicapped this body. That's why we got empty pews here tonight. That's why we don't have the attendance we ought to have tonight. That's why people aren't being saved in this church the way they ought to be chased. Saved because we're not doing our jobs. That's good preaching, Brother Sid. I don't care what they say. We ought to come to the place that we desire God to tag us it. We, we got a desire that we got to do more than sit and listen. We got a desire to do what God has gifted us to do. Whatever it is, it may be parking cars on Sunday morning. It may be security duty. It might be teaching a class. It may be sitting in the nursery. It may be sitting in here and singing your heart out for Christ. It may be praying for the pastor. It may be going and knocking on the door of a shut-in. I don't know what God's called you to do, but you got something you need to be doing, and you need to be doing it now. Too many of us have retired on God. The second game. No, I'm going to go back and do this. I wasn't going to do it, but I'm going to do this. I don't like to read much, but, but probably 40 years ago, I found this in a church newsletter, and I saw it this morning, and I'm going to read it. It's entitled, A Worthless or Worthy Life. Listen to this. 
Max Jukes lived in the state of New York. He did not believe in Christian training. He married a girl of like character. From this union, they have researched 1,026 descendants. 300 of them died prematurely. 100 were sent to the penitentiary for an average of 13 years each. 190 were public prostitutes. There were 100 drunkards, and the family cost the state $1,200,000, and they made no contribution to society. Jonathan Edwards lived in the same state at the same time. He believed in Christian training. He married a girl of like character. From this union, they have researched 729 descendants. Out of this family have come 300 preachers, 65 college professors, 13 university presidents, 60 authors of good books, three United States congressmen, and one vice president of the United States. Jesus makes a difference. But it's not only in your church, it's in your family. It's a fundamental principle. We just need to get back to understanding we need to be it for Christ. And a sidebar over here. I'm concerned. I don't suspect I see too many parents here that be guilty of this. You probably got some children and grandchildren that are. I'm going to tell you, I live over there by that park, that big park that they built, the city built. I met with them out there on the street when they built it. I said on Sunday morning when we're having church, you're going to be out here playing ball. Oh, no, 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 no. What a guess what they're doing out there on Sunday morning when you're supposed to be in church. What they're doing out there on Wednesday night when people ought to be in church. They don't have any use for the church. They don't have any use for our, our religion. They just want to play ball. And these parents that are hauling these young'uns around this travel ball, listen to me. This is just an illustration of it. But they're hauling around, oh, I want to get a scholarship. You better quit worrying about a scholarship make sure their name's written down in glory. Because 20 years from now, when you can't get them in a church for anything, they're going to look back and say, well, Daddy, you told me when I was young it wasn't important. You better be it before your kids, too. That's just a sidebar. Second game, keep away. Y'all remember the keep away? You had a barrier, a circle, something. Everybody was in the middle except two people. They were on the outside. You, you had a ball. Now, when, when I was a... About a senior in high school, they came out with a frisbee, so we played with a frisbee a lot. But anyhow, whoever's on the outside of the ring has to pass that object through or over that ring to the other person. And you do that until somebody intercepts it or picks it up or whatever, and then you move to the middle, and they move to the outside. Well, how do we play that in church? Have you ever heard this one? I would tithe if I could afford it. I would serve if I had more time. It's amazing to me how many people in the church keep away their time, possessions, abilities, and money. People, I've had people tell me, Preacher, I, I can't join the church because if I join the church, it's going to take too much of my time, too much of my money, too, too much of my fun. Can I tell you something? If you're really serious about being a child of God, life begins in church. I've never understood how people can so easily separate church and their estate. It's kind of like in the church today, the walls of this building have become that circle. And we come in here, and we're in here, and God's on the outside, but when we go back outside, we leave God in here, and we go on about our business. And we'll come back and visit Him next week. 
most interesting characteristic about this game is the persons in the middle capitalize on the smallest mistake. A tip ball, a fumble ball, whatever it is, and all of a sudden they move to the outside and you become the middle. It's kind of like this. Have you ever felt like you were just missing the blessings of God? I mean, they were coming close. And you try to grasp them, but they just get by you before you get them. There's something wrong, something wrong. I can't, I can't, I see them, I, I know they're there, I just can't grasp them. I can't get them, I can't catch them, I can't catch a break. It's kind of like going to the bank and speaking to the president of the bank and saying, Sir, I'd like to withdraw my savings. And he says to you, Well, we can't do that. You say, excuse me? Uh, we can't do that. Well, why? We got them invested in other things. Well, how long are you going to do business with that bank? But then we turn around and come to church, and God says, I own it all, and all I need is 10, 10% back. And you say, I can't, God. I got it invested in other things. How long do you think God's going to do business with you? Come on. God blesses faithfulness. And when we're unfaithful, God will not bless us. God will move from the middle to the outside. He'll put you in a place of need. You see, God expects us to be faithful with what and all that we have. And if we play keep away with Him, He'll show us who really can play keep away. Thirdly, a game called Kick the Can. How many of y'all remember Kick the Can? I grew up in Chilton County, Alabama. The object of kick can is you get a can. And you set it up out here, and again, you, you know, you get an it. Well, now, in Chilton County, we played barefooted. We didn't have shoes. So we played with a Sitco diesel fuel can. You know why? Because it was made out of cardboard. It's a whole lot better to kick a cardboard can barefooted than it is a tin can. But anyhow, you get a can, and you set it up. You get a you you, you got to get an it again. One potato, two potato, three potato, four. Any, many, many more. You finally get an it. And didn't they always count like this? They're supposed to count to 100. They turn around and count like this. Every time they do it. One, two, three, four, five, 76, 79, 80, 90, 100. Ready or not, here I come. And they'd turn around because the object was they go and find you. And if they found you, you had to race them back. If you kicked that can before it got to it, all kinds of chaos broke out because everybody had to go hide somewhere else. That's just how it is most of the time in a church. You finally get things on the even keel. God starts blessing. You start reaching a few souls. You start stirring the baptistry waters. The offering starts picking up. You begin to think about building programs. You, 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 finally are, 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 you finally got it. It's beginning to happen. You see it happen. And I guarantee you the devil's going to plant some old troublemonger back there and he's going to kick that can and all kinds of chaos is going to break out. And more times than not, it will destroy what God's doing and people will be content to live with what the devil has done. The attitude of childishness in the church. Talking down the church instead of talking up the Christ. Complaining and griping instead of contributing and giving. Probing and whimpering instead of praying and weeping. 
I was pastor of Sage Avenue Baptist Church in Mobile, Alabama. And uh, when I moved to Sage Avenue, they had a, a big gym. And I discovered pretty quickly every church of any size in Mobile had a gym because RA Basketball League was huge in that association. So we had a number of RA teams in my church. Now, my son, he was a little old boy. He's, I think he was about six, maybe seven years old, had never played basketball in his life. Well, they put him on a team with a bunch of kids that, like him, had never played basketball in their life, and they were awful. I'm a competitive guy. I'm competitive. I don't like to lose at anything. And I want to tell you, it was a trial of my faith to go to those ball games. It was awful, awful, awful. We got stomped. We got killed. We got beat week in and week out. And, uh, but it was big. You'd fill the gym up on Saturday morning. People would come to watch every game. Well, we were a, we were going to play our last game. I thank God. I'd been praising God all day. I was so happy. This is the last game of the season, you know. And our boys hadn't even come close. They hadn't even been in a game. Well, we were playing the past champions who all had returned players and had won every game that season and were not even close to losing. And for some reason on that particular day, I can't answer this one. I cannot answer it. But our boys jailed, and for the first time, they looked like a team. And the other boys, bless their hearts, they couldn't do anything right. And they couldn't score, and our boys were throwing everything up. And all of a sudden, we're coming down toward the end of the game, and we're in this thing. I mean, we got a chance to win, to beat the number one team. Now, what you got to picture is, all us Sage Avenue folks are over on one side of the gym on this big set of bleachers. And I'm on one end, and our best player is a little African-American boy that loved our church and came to Sunday school by the name of Sam. He's about that tall, but boy, he could dribble that ball and he could shoot. And, and, and uh, his mama was bigger than I am sitting on the other end of those bleachers. And boy, we were into this thing, and by now, it's a fever pitch. I mean, every time they'd shoot, we'd come off our, our seats, and we were yelling, and we were hollering, and I'd go up, and she'd go down, and this pew'd go like this, and, and then she'd go up, and I'd go down, and it'd go like this. I mean, it was just up and down. We, we were having us a time. Well, I looked up, and time's running out, and we're within one point. We're within one point of tying this game. Well, they go down and they shoot a layup and a miss, and Sam gets the ball. Well, Mama went up and I went down. Mama came down and I went up, and I'm yelling, Run, Sam, run! Run, son! And here comes Sam. He's driving down the court. And I'm thinking, if Sam makes this shot, we're going to win this ball game. Sam, I'm praying, son. I'm praying. He lays the ball up, and it goes in. Tie ball game. Well, Mama and me both went up, and they went down. We came down, they went up. All right, tie ball game. But the good news was the referee said, foul. 
One shot. So Sam went to the line and he shot. He missed. Tie ball game. They take the ball down, they shoot, they miss. Sam gets fouled. So we go back down this end of the court. Tie ball game. He's, oh, it's one point, I'm sorry, one point behind. But he's fouled. He's got, he's got two shots. So here we go. All right. Sam starts dribbling. He looks. He dribbles. He looks. He dribbles. He looks. He dribbles. He sets. He dribbles. I yell, shoot the ball, Sam. He shot. Swish. Tie ball game. Man, mama went up. I went up. Down they went. We came down up. They went. I mean, this place is going wild. We're tied. We got a chance. If he makes a shot, we're going to win. What? I'm pastor of this church. I'm calling everybody to prayer. Sam goes to the line, second shot. He dribbles, he looks, he dribbles, he looks, he dribbles. Shoot the ball, Sam, he shot. Swish! We win the game. Man, we went berserk. We're running, we're hollering, we're screaming. All of a sudden, there's whistles blowing everywhere, and the referee's yelling, no point, no point. His foot was over the line. So they get the ball with just a few seconds left. Our kids don't know what they're doing. So we're yelling, back up! Don't let them by. Don't foul them. Don't let them by. Their plan was they had a big old boy that could throw the ball near to the length of the court, and they had a kid that could shoot from anywhere. They were going to throw the ball to the kid out at the head of the, the key, and he was going to turn and take a desperation shot and see if he could win the game. Have you ever noticed it's always your son? They put my son out on top of the key, the guard. And I'm yelling at him, Brandon, look at daddy. Look, look, son. Stand like this. Don't touch him. Just stand there. Don't touch him. Don't foul him. Okay, daddy. <laughs> Threw the ball. Guy caught the ball. He turned. He shot. He missed. My son hadn't touched him. But the referee blew the whistle. Foul! The boy came to the line. Their best player. They gave him the ball. He dribbled. He set. He shot. Swoosh! They win the game. As long as I live, I'll never forget what happened next. My son collapsed at the middle of the court. There was a little boy who got to the game in the fourth quarter. He was on the team, but he got there late. He never dressed out. He never made a play. He never passed a ball, never caught a pass, never made a shot. But as soon as that ball went through that hoop, he ran to my son and called him a dirty name for losing the game. It crushed my boy. I went out there and I picked him up and held him in my arms. 
And I tried to convince him, son, you, you didn't, fa- daddy was watching. You did not foul him. It was a bad call. And besides that, you didn't lose the game. That point didn't count any more than the first point in the game. They just scored more points. It wasn't your fault. But you know what? It didn't bother anybody but my boy. But he was crushed. And nothing I said could help him. Now, that's like a church. Things will start happening. People start getting saved. Good things begin to happen, and all of a sudden there's a fight breaks out. And they got to have a heated business meeting. And somebody hadn't been in church in years and years and years, hadn't given dime, hadn't prayed, hadn't attended Sunday school class, hadn't contributed in any way to the church to show up at that business meeting and have their way. Wrong attitudes. In religious people. Next game. Hide and go seek. How do we play that game in the church? Well, I'll show you. Brother John, I don't know. What's the total membership of the church here? Active membership. Just ballpark. A couple of hundred. But on roll you got probably the 200 that are active probably about 40% of you roll about about 40% of you active roll in most Southern Baptist churches are the ones who come so that gives us 60% that aren't there on any Sunday now let's analyze that for a minute if 60% of our membership is not here where are they well let, let's, let's take a percentage of those who are shut ins they'd love to be here they'd give anything they could to be here but their health, their age, whatever it is, has prohibited them from being in church on Sunday. So there's a percentage. And in the real world where we live today, there's a percentage of our membership that's going to have to work on a given Sunday. But where are all those other people? Where are they? Well, I'm going to tell you. Why did God create Adam and Eve? For fellowship. What happened when sin entered into their lives? They hid. I can see God coming down. He knew where he was. He knew where they were. He knows all things, but he wanted them to fess up. Adam, Eve, I'm here for our walk. Where y'all at? I'm sure you had a southern accent like me. but I just believe God's going to talk that way when we get there. Where you at? Adam? I'm here, where, 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 there's a move over in the bushes. Adam, is that you? Yes, Lord. Adam, Adam, come out here, come here a minute. What, what's going on? I've sinned, Lord, and I was hiding because I'm ashamed. You know where all those people who are members of your church that aren't here, that ought to be here are? They're hiding. They're hiding. Some of them are hiding behind a bass boat. Some of them are hiding behind a golf cart. Some of them are hiding behind an excuse. I've heard it all. When I was a pastor, I heard it all. Well, preacher, you know, Sunday's the only day I get to sleep late. Hiding. Well, you know, preacher, Sunday's the only day I get to go see grandmama. Hiding. You know, this or that. Hiding. They're hiding. 
Well, that's the hiding part. What's the seeking part? That's your job. That gets back to that first point I made about being the church, the giftedness of the church. If there's somebody that's a member of this church and somebody from this church has not been in contact with them this week wanting to know where they're at, maybe somebody ought to crank up and get a hold of them. Sunday, if you're in your Sunday school class and somebody's usually there, it's not there before you get home, you ought to take your cell phone and call them and say, You okay? Just want you to know I love you. I'm concerned about you. What about your neighbor down the street? You never see going to anybody's church. Have you stopped and said, hey, hey, would you, would you come visit my church? We've got to seek them, folks. We've got to go get them. They're not going to come here unless we do the work, the seeking part, the going part, the working part, getting greedy and, and, and telling them that you love them. And hopefully have an opportunity to lead them to Christ. And then lastly, Simon Says. Y'all remember the game Simon Says? Simon Says, thumbs up. Simon Says, thumbs down. Thumbs up. Whoop. The goal is to do what Simon Says. Well, I'm a simple man. Seems to me if we can do what Simon says, we all just do what Jesus says. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll serve me. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll confess me before men. Jesus said, if you're hungry, I'll give you food. If you're thirsty, I'll give you a drink. Jesus said, I'll take care of you. If we can do what Simon says, why can't we just do what Jesus says and be faithful? To him and do what we're supposed to do as a church so we can be what the church ought to be. Does that make sense? Heads bowed and eyes closed. Jesus said, They are like unto children sitting in the marketplace and calling one to another saying, we've piped unto you, and you have not danced. We've mourned to you, and you have not wept. Truth was, they didn't do anything at all. So I'm going to ask you tonight, what are you doing for Jesus? Father, early this morning, you put an awesome burden on my heart to preach this message. And I've tried to be faithful. I've tried to yield to the Holy Spirit and hear what you'd have to say through me. And all I can say is, Lord, there's a reason for that. Somebody sitting in a pew here tonight who heard this message and you spoke directly to their life and their heart and God, I'm believing tonight that this altar should fill with people who come and say, Lord, I don't want to just do busy things for you. I want to be all that I can be for you and for this church. That's revival, Father. We're praying for that. And then maybe they need to get up out of the altar and take their pastor by the hand and say, Pastor, 
I want to serve like I've never served before. I want to be a part of the team like I've never been before. I'm praying for you, but I want to stand beside you and behind you and help you as we go forward from this day. Lord, I want our church to be fruitful. I want our church to win souls. I want our church to disciple people. I want our church to teach the word of God. I want our church to have a loving fellowship. I want our church to have a ministering spirit. I want our church to touch the lives of people. And I want to be a part of that, Lord. So I commit myself afresh and anew to your call tonight to become what I ought to be as a member of this body. So, Lord, that's our invitation. We pray that if there's anybody here lost, they won't get saved. Lord, first of all, I said, We'd all rejoice over that. But God, I'm preaching tonight to the church. Unless we figure out a way to be what we ought to be, we're going to eventually dry up and die. Because there's no new life, no fruit, when we just sit and watch. We have to be active, and we have to be the part of the body that you've called us to be. So now, Lord, that's the message you gave me to preach. Holy Spirit, I pray you'll blend it into the heart and mind of every believer here. And if they find themselves coming up short, they'll do personal business with you tonight. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us as we sing tonight. If God's touched your heart, pastors here at the front, the altar's open. Do you really want revival? Let's see tonight. Would you come?